0: So we have been talking about the clearing of tents on Hastings Street in Vancouver that is continuing as we speak. The city saying they are hoping to have that completed today, although also being mindful of the fact it could take longer than that. Hamish Ballantyne is joining us now, a community organizer with Van Du. Hamish, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I know you were there earlier. Can you kind of describe what you saw unfolding with this clearing of the tents?
1: So, um, today the Vancouver Police Department rolled up with about 100 officers um, and shot down the entire uh, kind of main strip of Hastings Street. And then they, along with uh, city engineering workers and sanitation workers, began a uh, taking down tents regardless of people's protestations um, and uh, impounding them or throwing them in the garbage.
0: And one of the big questions that keeps being put to the city and to, to the mayor, to others with the city, is where people are supposed to go. Uh, do you uh, have any idea where people are going if, or if there are even spaces for people to go?
1: So what the city says is that people have been offered housing and will be offered shelter spaces in the event that they're decamped. Um, the housing part, we all know, is not true. Um, the only new units of housing that the city announced uh, in relation to this encampment um, were the 98 units announced back in the fall, and just last week the city announced that those were months behind schedule and won't be open until June. Um, as far as shelter spaces go, um, shelters are very overcrowded, and there's not enough capacity or shelter beds available for all the people that are in the encampment. As of this morning, we called around to shelters in Vancouver, to all the shelters on the two one one list, and there are only two shelter beds available.
0: So what sense are you getting then as far as where people are going to go as their tents are taken down?
1: Um, People who I've spoken to over the past months have said that in the event that they're decamped, they literally have no option but just to go to the next street over and camp there or to go to a park and camp there. The only thing that will change as a result of this decampment is that all the people who were camps together with some kind of community and some kind of safety, some kind of ability to keep eyes on their neighbors, are now going to be blasted across Vancouver and forced to camp alone and hide, which is going to like, vastly increase their risk of, of uh, the danger to their lives of camping um, and being unhoused.
0: Uh, You mentioned the word safety. That was also something that was talked about and certainly asked about earlier today. And uh, the police chief talked about uh, not only uh, safety of officers, saying that some officers had been attacked, but that people living in the tents on East Hastings, there have been a large number of assaults, of attacks, and that people in those tents themselves are not safe. Uh, How do you respond to that?
1: It just seems curious to me that... um, if the city was concerned about the safety of people living in tents, they would choose to force them out of the only shelters available to them. Um, evidently, that's just some rhetoric, and really the safety of people who are living on houses in the city is not the priority at all. It's just like we saw with all of the discussion about fire risk. Um, you know, this is st- still the, the justification that's given of why people are being decamped, is because of the risk of their lives from fire when people are living in tents. Um, and what we see is that most of these fires happen in SROs, not in tents, and then are blamed on people living in tents. People in tents are continually scapegoated for problems that have existed in the city for a long time.
0: Uh, But have there not been fires started in propane tanks and issues with fires in tents?
1: There have been issues with fires in tents, and the thing about that is that for months, Vandu ran a program Um, where we provided fire training and fire extinguishers to people who were living in tents so that they, in the event of a fire, could immediately extinguish that on site um, and keep their neighbours safe. Um, This is much faster and more effective than someone who maybe doesn't have a phone who's living in a tent trying to get in touch with the fire department who takes several minutes to arrive. When people are trained and they have fire extinguishers in their tents, they can put them out immediately. Um, Lots of fires were put out this way through the fall, and then the city slashed all of the funding to that program. And now we have no way to get fire extinguishers to people or provide them with fire training.
0: Right. I would, I would think, though, that we can all agree that, that I, I get what you're saying and that having that as a, as a way to respond to a fire uh, is is better than not. But it's still not ideal that people are living in a situation where their home could catch fire and they're going to have to extinguish it.
1: Yeah. So it's just a form of harm reduction because the harm is caused by the housing crisis and the city, the province, the federal government failing to provide any adequate housing options for people that are living unhoused. And so as long as people are forced to live in tents, um, they might as well have a way to keep each other safe. And the city even took away that. Uh,
0: when we see what's happening there today as well, like you said, this is going to mean uh, people will simply move a street over or find somewhere else to camp. Uh, have, have, are there scenarios where people are keeping their tents today or are the tents being removed and thrown out?
1: Um, some people will be able to keep what they can make, what they can get on wheels. This is the language that the cops in the city use, is um, they need to be able to get everything on wheels, so on a trolley or a shopping cart, and be able to move it. So yes, if people can um, are home this morning, if they happen to be in their tent at the moment the city decides to take it away, then they might be given a chance to pack it up and move it. Um, but the reality is many people will come back to find that their tents are gone, that the homes have relied on for months, have been thrown in the garbage or impounded. And it's a very difficult process, if not impossible, to get those tents back once they've been impounded.
0: And, Hamish, I don't mean this to sound like a, like a, a very naive question, but I'm curious, when you say that people aren't home, are there people that are living in that encampment, living in those tents that are, that are working, that are going to work and coming home at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has to make money. So people go, like, they go and try to make some money somehow in order to afford food. Or they go to the bathroom, or they go to visit a friend or a family member, um, and then, you know, it's it's dangerous for them to leave their homes because they don't know that if they they don't know if when they come back their home will still be there.
0: Uh, how do you think this, or how do you see this playing out for the rest of the day?
1: Um, I mean, the city has stated that they want to decamp uh, every tent on the block, and so I see. Uh, you know, roughly 140 people who are currently unhoused being made even more vulnerable and not knowing where they're going to end up. All right. And also, I... Sorry, go ahead. I mean, um, I just hope that in the course of this decampment, the police don't choose to escalate what's already a very violent action of taking away people's homes and do more violence and arrest people um, and uh, cause more trauma.
0: All right, Hamish, we'll have to leave it there for today. Appreciate your time, though. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: It's time to check in with Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Hi there, Jill. I'm guessing I feel a lot better than you do. You sound like you've got a bad cold.
0: <laughs> I, I, I I don't. I feel fine. I just, oh. my voice is taking its uh, sweet time coming back to full strength. So, oh, yes, I'm, I'm not uh, infecting people or anything like that. I am fine. But, yeah, I don't I don't sound 100%, but that's okay. Well, uh, let me
2: do some talking because let me tell you, there's a lot of travel news coming down the pipe since since even the stuff I sent you yesterday.
0: Yes. Yeah, let's start. So we've got some ch- uh, Canada jetlines uh, late to breaking news.
2: Yeah, so this was really interesting. And you and I have talked about the fact that there have been four carriers that have really come out since the pandemic um, doing domestic flights, Canada jetlines, Porter, Lynx, Flair, and that some of them have brought on new routes, they've reduced routes and, and everyone's just trying to capture their market share. Well, um, Canada Jetlines, they actually paused their domestic routes. They're going to be focusing on sun destinations and leasing out some aircraft, which is actually normal practice. Um, but they, in the in the whole scope of this, uh, the Canadian carrier, which launched in fall of 2022, a lot of people will remember them. There were some super cheap deals in the market between Vancouver and Toronto. Well, they've quietly suspended. It's twice weekly uh, return trips between Toronto and Vancouver, as well as Toronto and Calgary. They've said it's coming back, uh, but they had the opportunity to to lease some aircraft, and you know that, like I said, that's normal practice, and it may make sense for them. It's kind of guaranteed revenue, guaranteed hours for the aircraft. So from a business perspective, it makes sense. Um, but the, supposedly these leases will be over by the fall and then they'll resume those domestic routes. But honestly, we'll wait and see And I'll keep you posted on that, Jill. All right. And uh,
0: some London airport news as well.
2: Yeah. So I've been watching this like a hawk and you know my fingers are and toes are crossed that this type of technology will land here in Vancouver soon. Um, but London City Airport has just introduced new CT scanners. Uh, basically what these... CT scanners do is that they allow uh, anyone going through London City Airport now to drop the ban on liquids over 100 mils, which has always been a bit of a nuisance. It's been going on for like decades now. Um, But passengers can now bring up to two litres of liquid on board with them, and they no longer will need to remove liquids, laptops, other electronics at the security check. So this is the second airport in the UK to adopt these new scanners, and the British government has actually set a June 2024 deadline for most airports in the UK to actually use these new CT scanners. So I would love one day for more money to go into technology than into staff for as far as our security here in canada
0: it would be nice to uh, to have it uniform because i'm sure you notice this as well that depending on the airport uh, sometimes you have to take your shoes off sometimes they pay attention to the liquids you can put it in your own plastic bag or they're a real stickler and you have to put it in their plastic bag it doesn't seem like everyone's on the same page
2: no and that is the absolute key in the messaging here while you know london city airport and another little airport in the uk is doing this The vast majority aren't yet. They're kind of test airports. So pack all of your your 100 mil little tiny containers into one clear zip top, one liter bag. So about the size of a medium freezer bag. Uh, Anytime you're traveling just to be safe. Otherwise, you risk the stuff being confiscated.
0: All right. Uh, Interesting. Interesting things happening there. Let's talk about loyalty programs and uh, some good news if you were worried about your points expiring.
2: Yeah, so this is good news. Um, Air Canada, throughout the pandemic, they kept pushing back their expiry date. So they've done it again. So Air Canada's Aeroplan loyalty program, they've pushed back the date that unused points are going to expire. And this time, Not until next year, September 30th of 2024. So that means between now and that date, any points that would have expired, they won't. But as of September 30th, 2024, the program's normal expiration policy will once again apply. And what that means is that points are going to expire if an eligible transaction has not been completed prior prior to this date. So just to give you an idea, you know, people think that you have to actually buy Uh, or travel with Air Canada, like via Trip or another Star Alliance airline, not the case. You can actually, like a simple cup of coffee at one of Aeroplan's highest profile partnerships, which is Starbucks, will do the trick. So just make sure if you haven't gone in and used your points um, that you maybe redeem, maybe for a Starbucks.
0: (laughs) All right. That's uh, good to keep that uh, in mind. All right. What else is happening? We're seeing more and more people coming back to traveling. The numbers are at least showing some increases in traffic.
2: Yeah, I've been looking at um, IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association. Their reports um, kind of a bit delayed, but they're reporting continued strong growth in air travel demand and this is based on its February 2023 traffic results. Like I say, it's, it's delayed. But the total traffic in February of this year rose 55.5% compared to last February. And globally, traffic is now at almost 85% of February 2019 level, so pre-pandemic. So we're getting there. There's still certain destinations worldwide that you know have been really slow to open and there's not a lot of traffic to those destinations yet but it's really getting getting there the demand is just so high and that's why the prices are so so crazy
0: right because we're not uh, not seeing a huge decrease when uh, looking no. at those prices as well um what about uh, as well Canada or how how Canada's kind of faring when it goes to the the getting back to travel
2: you know it's 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 getting there it's still behind so Um, Tourism spending in Canada, it did continue to grow last year, obviously, but it still remained well below pre-pandemic levels. And Stats Canada is reporting this. So for the full year, tourism spending increased 45% to to $74.38 billion as domestic and international travel bounced back um, once the COVID restrictions lifted. But that figure still sits more than a fifth below 2019 tourism spending levels, which neared 95 billion. Hmm. So still, still some ways to go. And I think that, you know, every, every month, we'll start to, to see things rebound more. And we're coming up to the the summer months. And in Canada, that's really high season for, for our tourism industry.
0: All right. We don't often talk about April being Autism Awareness Month as something to do with travel. But this is a really cool program that one of the resorts is doing.
2: Yeah, you know it's it's about time um, that we saw some some of the travel companies start to make autism programs part of their their expanded programs. So Beaches Resort has expanded its autism program with the release of all new sensory guides. So depending on where you're going in the public areas, whether that's pools or dining spaces or sports hubs, they're going to be rated on a scale of one to ten of sensory uh, sensory stimulation, and The other organization that just came out that they're going to be doing this as well will be Legoland, and they're going to be building up their autism-friendly options by certifying their U.S. parks, which is really great to see. And I think these sensory guides are really important for families who are dealing with this.
0: Yeah, because you you probably wouldn't think about it unless you are dealing with it uh, right in your family, but it would be a huge, huge obstacle and make it very difficult.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's why these are so, so important. So check with the the resorts that you happen to be going if you're, you're dealing with this type of situation, and it'll just give the caregivers plus the guests with cognitive disabilities just a more comfortable situation, and they'll be able to navigate whether that's a resort or a theme park, but more and more uh, companies are coming to the table with this.
0: Uh, let's talk as well about Machu Picchu because we talked about this earlier that it was kind of a victim of its own success but there's been a bit of a development there.
2: Yeah so you might remember that it was actually closed for a little bit of time because of some um, some unrest and it it did reopen but you know there are over a million visitors annually to Machu Picchu and there's the size of it's really vast. So there's 25,000 miles of Inca main road to explore, but most go on the Inca trail. And because of that, there's only a certain number of passes that are given. So no more than 500 people can be on the paths each day. And they almost always sell out, Jill. So what's happened is that they're planning to expand this and some uh, tour operators are working to build new routes that people can take. Uh, one of them is a company called Intrepid, and they're, they've got a new expedition where they're calling it Trek the Great Inca Road. So it's an alternative route to the Inca Trail. And I think this is great because it allow um, a much more sustainable development of that area. And allow the tourism to grow without ruining certain sections of that ancient highway, but also helps different communities in that area. So, the, you know, the the communities that are part of the Inca Trail, they see tourists and people are buying their, their wares and... Um, spending money with the local people there, but now it'll it'll just open up so much more, and it's about time. This is uh, obviously a really, really popular destination, so it's great to see this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and while we're on the topic of going to uh, exotic and beautiful places, uh, I this is an important one. It might seem a little bit odd and out there, but we've talked about this before, the importance of knowing the rules when you travel <laughs> somewhere. Uh, facing deportation after a nude photo, what
2: happened what the heck I, Yeah, cnn reported this and it's like oh yeah a tourist could be deported from indonesia he posted a semi-nude photo of himself in bali um basically from the waist down on a sacred volcano total no-no um and it's really important to know Things whenever you're going to a destination because things that may be okay here might not be where you happen to be traveling. You can always visit travel.gc.ca to find out basic laws, things to avoid doing, um, and also how to respect a destination's culture. So in Bali, not only did they ban foreign uh, foreigners from doing this type of thing, uh, but also renting motorbikes, which doesn't seem like a big thing, and also um, from um, making sure, well, they actually require proper visas for international visitors planning to work from the island. And that's a move to, that will hopefully go after people who are digital nomads, who are living and working remotely there. So just, I'm going to throw out there a a couple of things that you might not realize, but like in Japan, for example, over the counter allergy and sinus medication that contains pseudofedrine, um, like Vix inhalers and pseudofed are completely banned in Japan. You'll get into all sorts of trouble if you take that type of thing. Like you can't wear high heels in historical parts of Greece. You can't um, use water guns in Cambodia. You can't deface currency in Thailand. It's illegal uh, because it has the likeness of the Thai royal family on it. And so you could land it in jail. You can't chew gum in Singapore. It's been illegal since 1992 because it causes damage to the public transit system. There are so many things like feeding the pigeon population in Venice, in the Piazza San Marco. It's actually illegal and you can get a big, huge, fat fine um, for doing that. So just make sure you know before you go. No, That's a- all. That's the moral of that story. <laughs> it's a very good
0: <laughs> lesson indeed. All right. Let's get people traveling. What deals do you have?
2: Oh geez, I'm gonna give you the Seven Night Alaska cruise. So um this one has to be booked by April 7th. It actually they gave us an extension on this. It was supposed to be the end of March, but it, it has been so popular. May the 14th. They still have room, Seven Night Cruise, round trip from Vancouver in an ocean view cabin, four seventy nine taxes of three twenty six. A really fun deal to uh it's actually not just to Uh, the island of Oahu, but also to Maui, Um, you can actually, if you make a booking in April with one company, it's Air Canada Vacations, you get entered into a draw to win $2,000 towards your trip. So Hmm. this is the deal that I thought I would share because it's pretty good. Uh, April, uh, no, Air and Seven Nights Hotel, September 26th through until November 28th, so getting into the fall, $7.99. Taxes of... Four fifty one, um, so you might want to consider that. And then uh, a cool thing to Puerto Vallarta, July eighteenth through until September twenty sixth. The deal, including airfare and seven nights in a four star beachfront all inclusive resort, is seven ninety nine taxes, six twenty six. But it comes with a bonus hundred dollar future travel credit as well. Ooh, very nice. And why yeah. don't we throw in the long stay one as well? Oh, yeah. I love this deal. For any snowbirds out there, probably the most popular uh, snowbird getaway just simply because of the value. This is a long stage of the Costa del Sol region of southern Spain, October 29th. It's the airfare 20 nights accommodation and transfers 17.99 taxes of 8 30 And all the details, if you missed any of that, because I know it's a lot of information, is at TravelBestBets.com. All right. Sounds good. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill.
0: as we mentioned just before the break, B.C.'s minimum wage is set to increase. It is going to be going up on June 1st. Our government has promised to link future minimum wage increases to inflation. So wages keep pace in a predictable way for workers and businesses. We did so in 2022 when we increased the minimum wage by 2.8 percent which was the increase in the cost of living in bc in 2021 today i'm announcing that effective june 1st the general minimum wage will increase by a dollar and 10 cents an hour to $16.75 an hour That was Minister Harry Baines making that announcement earlier today. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for
3: having me on, Jill. Nice to talk to you.
0: You uh, as well. It's been a while. Uh, What are your thoughts? What kind of an impact is this going to have on the restaurant and food industry?
3: Well, you know, the minister is right. I mean, we've got to make sure we take care of people you know, at the lowest, the highest. Um, But this is to illustrate the point here. If you had a million-dollar restaurant, which would be a small restaurant, small, small, mom-and-pop restaurant, and typically your labor cost is 30% of that million dollars, so your your labor cost should be around $300,000. And um, so if you increase that by, you know, close to 7%, you're adding $21,000 to the cost of that business. And the question then becomes for the business owner, how do they deal with that? You know, how do you keep putting your prices up? Um, do you decrease your costs? And, and that's the dilemma that everybody's going to find themselves in. And we suggested to uh, Minister Baines uh, to go 3%, particularly with the effect uh, in our sector, which, you um, know, I mean, a lot of people, the people that make actually minimum wage in our sector are, are typically the server's. Um, but the servers also get compensated through tips, and, you know, servers can do very well through the tip, the, the, the whole tip mechanism. But uh, nevertheless, when we spoke to him this morning, he, they, they felt really strong with the 6.9, so we're going to have to find a way. I mean, we're in a labor shortage, uh, we need workers, And um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a big hit. I mean, it's, I haven't heard anybody go, oh, we can deal with that, everybody's going to go, oh. Um so you're gonna know, probably see a combination of rise some some price um some price increases. We did ask the government if they could um hold off for six months to give us time to adjust their menus and stuff, but they didn't want to do that. And um and then you look at a whole bunch of efficiencies. Like do you do you see open as many hours as you are? Do you simplify your menu? Do you use technology? You know, we talked about robot robots in the, in the past. You know, some, some, uh, you know, soup restaurants are using technology or order kiosks. So that's just a typical result of business trying to deal with that. They want to uh, keep their businesses open and make a, you know, a small profit as they do in restaurants because they want to keep hiring people because people are a greatest asset. But this, This is going to put a lot of cost pressure on us, for sure.
0: Uh, You mentioned uh, technology as one of the the questions there, or if that's going to see a a change. Do you think that that we'll see a bit uh, of of a shift as well, and that there will always be restaurants where people go for the experience, and it is the experience of whether it's fine dining or or the service, and that's part of why you go there. But then there are also places where, sure, you could have someone bring you your food, or like you said, you could have a robot bring your food, or you could order it and do more of kind of the London pub style where you order at the counter and it's brought to you. Do you think we're going to see more of a shift like that, especially for places where it's not really the experience that you're going for?
3: Absolutely. And you're right. There's a differentiation between that experience where you sit down and be served and and you tip and you feel great and you don't really care too much about the price versus uh, the quick and fast, you know, quick service restaurant environment where it's really about how quick you can order, how quick you can get your food, And um, and I actually went to a restaurant that had a robot and it was quite novel, but it was it. But it was it was a sushi restaurant uh, that was kind of a quick service type sushi restaurant. It was kind of fun. I didn't really need to see a server or we didn't see a server. So you're going to see a lot of different mixes coming up in the in the for sure in, in the industry to deal with this.
0: Uh, we Have have we shifted away as well? Because when you mentioned tips, and certainly there are some places where anyone that's, if you've worked in the service industry, you know that t- tips are huge in some places. Yeah. And there's kind of a scale on, on, on where tipping kind of plays a role. Uh, d- are, have we shifted away, though, that the minimum wage is no longer tied to if you're, say, a liquor primary license yeah. or you're working in an establishment like that?
3: Yeah, it used to be that there was a wage differential between liquor servers and regular servers. And in fact, uh, liquor servers, a kind of interesting history, liquor servers uh, would make less because they make way more in chips. I mean, we, we did a survey in Victoria and uh, about a month ago, and we're seeing, you know, in a busy restaurant, a server easily making eighty-five or $90,000 a year uh, as a server. So anybody who wants to get into the service business, we're hiring but um what the government saw and it was that that a lot of the and there's some stats out that came out today a lot of the minimum wage earners happen to be women in the service industry and it was sort of like why are we doing this why are we paying a different wage uh, primarily to a majority of women that are servers even though they get wages and so they changed that and i think that was that was that was good i mean i think it was a little bit sort of skewed the wrong way so um they're not interested. There used to be years ago. I, I think there's some merit to this, especially when the minimum wage gets higher, is how do you deal with youth workers that are inexperienced? Should you really be hiring at $16.75 an hour? Or should you, and there was a training wage for that, but it got kind of abuse, but... Um, you know, you sort of say, like, you know, we to pay you $15 an hour for three months as you go through training and become more productive. But that got thrown out, too. So it is across the board fair for all. The, the danger is, uh, Jill, is that if you you have wage inflation, this is the, our argument with the minister, is that it's fine to take care of the minimum wage at the, at the bottom of the scale. But everybody else will want that same 6.9%. So if you're making $19, you're going to expect to sort of keep your distance from the person, the wage bracket below you. So you get this general wage inflation. And that's why typically um, it's not just, you know, the the government saying, you know, we're going to increase the wages for minimum, minimum wage for those workers. It kind of goes right across the board because... Otherwise, you're going to get the minimum wage people making almost as much as your as your workers. So there's a whole bunch of disparities that occur unless you make those adjustments.
0: Right, because somebody who's making around that now, or even if they're making slightly more, then you're you're basically saying that you're going to be making minimum wage. And like you said, you don't want to be made. It's almost like taking a bit of a demotion.
3: Yeah, it is for sure. You know, you work hard all of a sudden, you know. The newbie Jill comes on and she's making as much as you are. You're going to hang in a second. It should be a little bit of a differential and more experience. So, yeah. So that's why the, the effect is just not taking care of the bottom end. It, it flows through to the right, right through to the whole. In general, right through the whole wages in the in that business.
0: Uh, and you mentioned, to food prices. And I think anybody who's been going to restaurants has probably noticed that things, like yep. everything else out there, is more expensive. Um, I, I know people get it, that that's where restaurant owners are going to have to look. But there's got to be a tipping point or a, sp- a spot where you just can't keep putting the prices up because people aren't going to keep paying that.
3: No. And, you know, fortunate for us, is there's still this pent-up demand uh, for, you know, we still haven't been, we haven't sort of satisfied ourselves from all the times that we couldn't go out during the pandemic. People still want to go out and they're still experiencing it. There's new things happening and concerts and stuff, so it's a lot of activity. But we are seeing that people are looking at their average, so we always measure things by our average check. And so, you know, the average check is what, what, on average, what does a person spend in this establishment? You'll see people now starting to, they'll go out, but they might have, they might share a plate. They might have more appetizers. They might be more inclined to go to um, uh, happy hours to take advantage of those economics. So there's all sorts of ways that the consumer is going to find to use this. We can't just keep increasing our prices. That's just that's just dangerous. There is a restaurant in Victoria recently that published a, Here's my cost of a burger, and I make twenty one dollars I think they were making something like thirty or forty cents like there was no money in it for them, and they had to keep because of you know the food inflation and all the rest of the input costs have been going on so now I'm not trying to claim oh poor us and it's a hardship but it, it is a tough life for a restaurant person to try to to try to balance all these things because ultimately we want to create that experience for when you come into our restaurants we want you to feel Great, comfortable, like our food, you know, not too much sticker shock. Understanding that you know we're trying to be reasonable in our pricing, but this you know this inflation in the last couple of years has, has sort of changed that a little bit, and hopefully it's coming down. And we did say to the minister, inflation's not six point nine in BC; it's a little bit higher here than the rest of Canada. That's why we sort of felt you know three three and a half percent would be a little bit easier for us, but um, in Ontario. Um, They did over 6%, but they, and I think this is smart, they give industry notice of six months to prepare to make those changes, but the the minister didn't want to do that here. So we'll just keep plugging away here, Jill.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. But Ian, thanks so much for joining us today to talk more about this, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: Yeah, you too, Jill. Take care.
0: a couple of things to talk about as you know and have been hearing on the news, the decampment is continuing, Vancouver police on scene uh, on a stretch of East Hastings Street, removing tents that have been in that neighbourhood for quite some time. We're also going to touch on something we talked about when it first came to light from Vancouver City Council and that was this idea of following the code of conduct that is in place at Council to be able to access grant money. But some questions being raised about that if that means that anybody that criticizes the current council if they will be left out of those funding decisions well joining me now is amanda burrows interim executive director with the first united church community ministry society amanda thank you so much for taking some time today Thank you for having me. Uh, well, before we get to the the concerns about this new council policy, uh, because it is happening now, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the camps being removed, the tents being removed, and what kind of an impact do you think that's going to have on that stretch of East Hastings?
4: Well, the decampment that's happening right now, Is absolutely antithetical to what we want to do when we want to provide housing for people in the downtown east side. I mean, I'm actually at the UBCM conference right now where the hashtag is and the name of the conference is Housing BC Together. We're actually decamping. Um, housing in DC together and I just really think that it goes against the values of compassion and dignity that so many of our new policy plans that have been dropped from levels of government are stating and I I, I just think that it's actually it's pretty
0: hypocritical. Right how do you think it could be handled better than given that that I think people will agree that it's not uh, even if if you don't completely by the safety argument it, it's not a solution it's not a preferred way for people to be living so how do you how do you think it could be handled differently
4: so yeah an encampment is a direct result of government failure of policy to provide adequate housing so when we have a lack of adequate housing stock that is safe permanent and secure encampments happen and they happen regionally and they happen across the country. And so until we do prioritize and we prioritize based on our political will and we prioritize based on our funding, we have to provide housing. Otherwise we have to then meet the needs through human rights lens of these folks living in these encampments to make them safer. There are low hanging fruit interventions that we could do to provide safer spaces for these spaces of encampments. So using the public safety Uh, argument which you know of course like fire safety that is something that we are super aligned with we do not want to see fires down there but there are harm reduction methods to intervene into those conversations by producing like fire safety training for instance but there are other um, ways and supports to intervene into this rather than an inhumane approach to decamping people and not offering adequate housing solutions one person even said that they feel like they're being like Disappeared. I mean, in Vancouver, that's how we're treating our citizens. It just does not sit well with so many of us down there.
0: I know as well that that SROs certainly aren't the the answer, and they're not the solution. But they are part of this and they are, they are something that has been used for housing. Is it a failure as well? Do you think that, that through whether it's lack of inspection or lack of enforcement, so many of the SROs have been allowed to fall into such states of disrepair that people are choosing, saying that it is safer and cleaner to live in a tent on the street than in one of those units?
4: Yeah, of course. I think that what happens in some SROs, they can be inadequate housing, unsafe, unclean. People don't want to live in them. And again, that is a direct result of policy failures over the last decade as we've approached these problems with a lens that's not working.
0: Uh, Amanda, I want to shift a little bit and talk as well. This is something that uh, I know you have written about. Uh, there is an opinion piece in the Vancouver Sun as well. We talked about this uh, when Dan Fomeno wrote about it last week. Also, uh, this this uh, idea that uh, criticism or uh, anything that kind of falls outside of the, the workplace policy at the City of Vancouver that could get in the way of groups like yours getting grant money, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah.
4: Many. Um, I think criticism is respectful. I think living in a democracy such as we do allows a space and a place to have that type of dialogue to, you know, truth to power, um, check power, et cetera, and so forth. So being able to then come up as a nonprofit where we meet a need where other sectors such as government cannot and to be able to call into question policy decisions like the one that we're seeing enacted today with the decampment is part of the work it is part of the work it is part of the service delivery and we want to do systems change work which means getting into that policy trying to shift and get into that social change by looking at the root cause of problems when you look at root causes of problems you have to bring the government into that conversation as well with their policy decisions so it is all part of the civic discourse it is respectful and we totally align with that type of i guess you could say code of conduct in our conversation i think today i'm being critical of government, but I think I'm doing it in a quote unquote respectful way. And in our
0: democracy, I should be allowed to and actually encouraged to. Uh, Are you fearful though, that the comments even that you're making today could come back or that they could be influential on future council decisions about grant money?
4: No, (laughs) and I'm not because I actually do believe that there are enough resources to share. And especially in the nonprofit sector, we need to stop being pitted against each other to compete. For the small amount of dollars that are allocated to us, so if we had any sort of punitive action that came out of this, um, you know, I would find I would find uh, funding elsewhere because that's also my skill set to do. Other other nonprofits and other of my colleagues who don't feel as comfortable or competent to speak out, um, I'm sitting in this place of privilege that I feel like I can as well. So a lot of people, um, you know, I recognize the risks for sure. But a lot of my colleagues, you know, don't feel like they can speak out. And that is just not, that stifling and silence is not the way that we want to be showing up in this
0: city or this country. Right. And do you think too? did it start with, uh, I know uh, there was a lot of discussion about Van Du getting uh, city grant money in the past and, and how that one organization was using the grant money. Do you think this is kind mm-hmm. of the the, the council or, or the city looking at that and trying to find a way that, that, the, the money is used specifically for what it's supposed to be used for?
4: Yeah, I mean, everybody likes conversations around impact and accountability, but the Van do um, conversation is, is two different ones. The contract that they received last summer is very different from the grant denial of $7,500 to do their art program that they've done year after year. And I think those two conversations are separate. Um, I can't speak on their behalf, but I, I view those as separate. And I, I view the $7,500 one comes across like a punitive um, discipline on the way that they, because they're so, they, they're activists, they're they organize, they're hypercritical as, as they need to be. We need voices and stuff like that. So I do feel like that was a reaction, but I can't speak into the contract one. I think those are two separate.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I, w- I would agree with you uh, on that uh, for <laughs> sure. Uh, do you think this is going to, to be difficult, though? Like you said, there might be, while you're comfortable talking about this, there will likely be other groups that will look at this and think twice and maybe not be critical. And that is going to stifle some of those conversations. Well, and then,
4: <laughs> well, then this is what we always have to do when we're in positions of power and privilege. And we do have to open up this conversation so more people feel emboldened and empowered to do so as well. I, I do, admittedly, I'm at the UBCM Summit for Housing, surrounded by elected officials, um, standing in a corner doing this interview with you, I'm not fully 100% confident. You know, like, I, I do feel, um, yeah,
0: like, this, this is taking um, personal courage,
4: too. Um,
0: yeah. Well, I I appreciate you uh, taking some time uh, from the conference. And and you're right, there's a a certain irony that uh, you were at this housing conference while all of this is happening in the city, uh, especially today. Amanda, I uh, won't take up any more of your time, but thank you so much for taking that time out of your day to chat with uh, the show. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah, always a pleasure. Have a wonderful day.
0: So a lot of questions have been asked today about the people being told they can no longer camp on that section of East Hastings Street, questions about where they are going to go. And earlier today on the Mike Smith Show, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim was asked about the number of shelter spaces that are currently available in the city of Vancouver. Here's just part of that exchange.
3: That that guy I just spoke to said there are two, as far as he knows. Do you know how many there are? Like how many shelter spaces are available right now? Uh, Mike, I don't have the accurate number, so uh, you, know, I, you know I want to you know the number. Shouldn't you know that before you move people out? Shouldn't you know how many shelter spaces are available before you tell people to move along? Sure, and you know what I'm saying is the situation's fluid because these these shelter spaces get filled up and uh, vacated all the time. So you know you can have a number vary, um, you know, within hours.
0: All right, that was Mayor. Ken Sim, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim, speaking with Mike Smith on his show. Well, joining us now is Nicole Mucci, who is a spokesperson with the Union Gospel Mission. Nicole, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me today. Hi. Do you know how many shelter spaces there are available currently in Vancouver? For the entire city? That is
5: actually a really difficult number to pin down and something that I've been spending quite a bit of time this morning um, looking for. Uh, From UGM's standpoint, we have a 92-bed shelter that has been really consistently full for uh, over the last year. We have actually had an average of like two to six turnaways
0: every single night for over a year. Wow. I I was going to ask you how many people. So two, between two and six. So you are turning Mm -hmm. people away every day. Yeah, pretty consistently.
5: There are rare occasions where our shelter isn't uh, full, but often that's when the extreme weather has been called and those emergency additional shelters are opened up. But on your average night, when it's not super-duper cold, we are full.
0: And when you turn someone away, the two to six people every day, what what are staff saying to them? Well, one of the things that we do our best is to try
5: to find alternatives. And so there is a service 211 um, where you can call and you can try to find uh, available shelter space. And so our case managers or our shelter workers will do that first. And they'll call and they'll try to find space in the event that there isn't space anywhere else. And this, that happens pretty consistently. Um, we work with them to make sure that they have the gear that they need to be safe overnight um, on because it can be dangerous to be
0: outside overnight. Right. And so that two one one number. So that is um, mm-hmm. somebody we talked to earlier and Mike Smith talked to him as well. So that, that was where he got that number of two shelter spaces. They said that they had called all of the places that provide shelter mm-hmm. to ask. And, and there were two spaces. I mean, mm-hmm. does it even like the, the mayor said there that it's fluid? Is it something where it also depends on what time of day you call? Uh, it's more that it, it's fluid daily. So Every
5: day, um, the number might fluctuate a little bit, but the reality is that our shelter spaces are full because there are more people experiencing homelessness than ever before. And if there isn't somewhere for the folks in the decamp, in the encampment to go, like
0: what? Where are we going to send them? Where are we going to offer them in terms of safety and shelter? Right. And and when someone comes to UGM, how, how does it work as far as, I, I get what you're saying, you're turning people away, but when someone comes, do they stay a certain amount of time or do they come every day hoping to get a bed or how does that work?
5: It kind of depends. And so we have some individuals who we know are going to come Pretty consistently, but the goal is, is that once somebody enters into our shelter, it's for them to really develop a relationship with one of our case managers who can try to work with them to uh, ultimately determine what those next steps of their lives are going to look like. So, whether that is looking for, sh- uh, for permanent housing or if it's looking to enter treatment and recovery. But the reality is is that there is just such a bottleneck within our shelter system because there's no housing available for individuals either. We have a complete crisis when it comes to housing and safe spaces for individuals from uh, trying to exit homelessness.
0: Right. So even if somebody, say, has been able to, to find a job and they're ready to move into housing or they're mm-hmm. able to do that, there's just nowhere to go. Yeah,
5: and we have that at our shelter right
0: now. And so how long would somebody typically spend then, or how long would somebody be allowed to spend to stay at the UGM? So prior to COVID, we used to have a two weeks in, two weeks out process. Um, And
5: the goal there was just really to try to make sure that the shelter is truly supposed to be an emergency stopgap. But the reality is that there is no housing stock available for individuals. And so there are folks who have been staying with us For more than two weeks, because they are working so diligently with our with our case managers to try to find housing.
0: Right. So, when you say more than two weeks, are are they staying for months? Sometimes, yeah. Hmm. And I I would imagine too. Even I, I mean, we understand it makes sense why you would have that policy, but but then how does it help as well if you were to follow the policy exactly and even say after two months, okay, you have to leave because knowing that that person then is just going to go back onto the street. Well,
5: and that's actually one of the reasons we stopped that policy is because we we recognized that it wasn't person-centered. It wasn't really about trying to ensure that the individual um, at that point in their life and in their journey was actually being treated with the utmost dignity and compassion. And that's why we got rid of the policy.
0: Uh, Where do you see people going then, uh, again, with this encampment being cleared, uh, the city and uh, first uh, emergency crews saying that it is going to be cleared because it's a safety hazard and uh, that there are issues, even with the the safety of people living in this encampment, where do you anticipate or see the people that were living there going?
5: It's a really good question because what's happening right now is it feels like the the folks down on Hastings are being told you we don't have a home for you yet but you can't stay here and so there's no clear answer on where folks are gonna go and that might mean that tents might pop up in other places and and we might see a cycle of this because really until there is true affirmative action being made in terms of housing options and and more shelter spaces that actually accommodate individuals for where they're at in their life and their various needs because no person is the same, then we aren't going to make any progress and folks are still going to be struggling with homelessness and they're still going to be
0: feeling like they're forced to set a tent up somewhere because there is nowhere else. All right, Nicole, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show and bringing us that perspective from UGM. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And this is the Downtown Van Annual State of Downtown Report. It just happens to be coming out the same day a lot is happening in downtown Vancouver. It takes a look at the highlights on how downtown Vancouver has fared during this past year, taking a look at things like economic recovery, after almost an entire year without COVID-related restrictions. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Jane Talbot, Interim President and CEO of Downtown Van. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. We are going to talk about the 2023 state of the downtown report. It was just released earlier. Uh, Jane, before we do that, though, and I know this is a very changing thing that's happening, but we have been talking a lot about the removal of tents on East Hastings Street, which is a part of downtown. I'm just curious if you've been following along or your thoughts on that.
6: Um, It's happening right now, and it's a developing story,
0: and we're learning about it as everyone else is. Um, What I can
6: say, though, is that I fully expect the city and BPD has a thoughtful uh, response to this that's both sensible and sensitive.
0: All right, uh, yes, and we'll be following uh, along more and uh, seeing what's happening with that as well. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the findings. As I mentioned, this is the state of downtown Vancouver and the 2023 edition really looking at how the city has come out uh, post or kind of at this point uh, through the pandemic with restrictions lifted and people going back to whether it's back downtown for fun or for work. Uh, Can you talk a little bit, if we start with, offices and office vacancy. What kinds of trends are you seeing as far as people coming back? So we have some good news in terms of office workers returning.
6: Slowly but surely, we're seeing an increase in foot traffic from office workers downtown. And Vancouver and Montreal have more office workers returning than any other major Canadian downtown. So we're moving in the right direction there.
0: And I found it interesting that it found so the the vacancy for for offices, a bit of a change there. But when we're looking as well as people returning to the downtown core, I thought it was interesting that we're seeing a bump on Saturdays and, and a bit of a shift as to when people are coming downtown. <laughs>
6: Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well, and uh, I think it, it speaks to what a vibrant downtown Vancouver has to offer, and there's a lot going on on weekends. We know that enter- the entertainment industry is, is recovering well. We know that people are going to restaurants again. We know that people are shopping again,
0: and we know that people do that uh, on weekends, so um, it's optimistic. And when you talk about people are shopping again and retail, I know this report also looks at the number of retail stores and I'd seen the number. Uh, Was it something, so it was 22 new retailers opening, but 33 retailers closing down. Of course, people have been paying attention to what's happening with Nordstrom. Are there concerns with the loss of retail in the downtown core?
6: Well, I think what we've learned from the Nordstrom
0: closing is that
6: Vancouver can can support uh, a large-scale retailer. So we know that the Nordstrom location downtown was outperforming any other location in Canada and was actually doing better than their flagship in the States. So it is a loss to downtown Vancouver. There's no doubt about that. But we know that when we have the right retailer come in place, that we can
0: support that. And do you have any ideas on, on what that site might look like in the future, or is it too soon to know that? It's too soon to know that. All right. Len, when we look as well, um, hotel occupancy is something that's also uh, been in the news as far as it increased. Uh, I think the numbers it was 40% in 2021 to 72% in 2022. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the bringing back of hotel guests and seeing that occupancy?
6: So uh, the hotel occupancy is... Is encouraging we know that the cruise ship industry is returning we know that the conferences are coming back and we know that people are traveling into downtown both for weekend visits and for longer stays so it is encouraging and we expect next year to be even better
0: and as far as the, the Granville Strip, certainly that's been in the news a lot lately as well. We know that there is a vision to kind of bring back some vibrancy to the Granville Entertainment District and, and to try and, and, and clean up that area as well. Uh, what does this report or, or looking at, at what's happening with the, the, the Entertainment District, what, does, what is that showing us?
6: So the Granville Entertainment District is top of mind, and we know that the city is moving forward with the Granville plan, and we're optimistic about that. We're going to be at those tables and in those conversations, and we're part of the solution on on the revitalization of Granville Street. We also know that work is happening around the nighttime economy, and we're looking to see how the Granville Entertainment District can become a 24-hour economy.
0: I also was interested by the the looking at, at the numbers when it comes to rentals and and the rental market. Anybody that's been looking for rental housing knows it can be very difficult. So I think the 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 average or the median rent for a one bedroom in the downtown core was almost twenty five hundred dollars, which seems pretty high. Um, but it also showed that the kind of age groups or the most of the people living downtown seem to be of a of a younger demographic, and, and we did see. S- s- some kind of shifts there. What are your thoughts on, on the demographic and the, the price when we're looking at rentals? Well, we know that
6: uh, Vancouver does have a younger demographic in
0: the downtown core.
6: And we know that the cost of rent is, is expensive and it is a concern for us. And we work with um, in partnership with other organizations to support the development of more affordable housing, not just in the downtown core, but in the city of Vancouver.
0: Uh, Did anything else stick out to you as far as trends or or things that we're seeing shift in the downtown core, Uh, since this really is the first state of the downtown report, since we've seen all of those COVID restrictions lifted and seen people coming back to the office and kind of going back to that sense of normal? I think what sticks
6: out for me about this report is, I think what sticks out for me on this report is just how far we've come over the last year. And, it's going to take time to come out of the pandemic and we're further ahead than we were last year at this time. And I expect that next year when we're having this conversation, Joe, that we'll, uh, we'll be saying the same thing next year. So we look forward to another year of positive growth.
0: All right, Jane, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking more about this report.
6: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you.
0: For most of us, crime is something we see on
6: the news. We never think it could happen to us,